So let me just <coughs> remind you where we got to last time. I'm going to, um, so this, this is just kind of with you. Uh, and then I'm going to talk a little bit more about what Maxwell and Boltzmann did, and then we'll start to slip into a couple issues. One is to recover a more general formulation of statistical mechanics. Um, what we're doing now is just looking at a very you know, particular concrete model of a particular system, and we want a much more general abstract characterization. And then, uh, and then we'll start to get into the into the reversibility and recurrence objections. Um, I'll switch off. I'll hand it off to David at some point. Um, but I do want to. I I, I want to harp for a minute on what I take the the, the, the explanatory situation to be. Um, this again may be something where David and I ultimately disagree, but let me at least make it clear. So what, what did we do last time? Last time we said, well, if you give me just a distribution in as a, for this f of xt for Boltzmann, when you're reading Boltzmann's paper, this is a distribution of energy. Uh, so the x would be a certain amount of energy. And, and this thing, if you take dx over some little region at some time, it'll tell you what proportion of the individual molecules, individual atoms in your box of gas have that energy. And, and of course, from the energy, you can get to speed. So this is related to the speed distribution. Again, I'll just warn you that um, that Boltzmann, the F, is an energy distribution. That's why these square roots of X's show up. If you do things in terms of speeds, the square roots of X's tend not to show up. So if you're comparing to different people, we don't need to go through the details. Um, so what I do is I just give you at a certain moment, at a certain time, what the distribution of energies of the molecules are. I assume, for the sake of simplicity, that the positions are uniformly distributed at this sort of coarse grain level, and that the velocities, the directions of the velocities, are isotropically distributed at this coarse grain level. And therefore, if I have the actual distribution of energies or the distributions of speeds, that will complete my, my coarse grain description. And what we've been trying to do is derive an equation for how this distribution of energies or distribution of speeds will change with time okay, as a function of time. And what we did last time was we said, well, <clears throat> because, this, because the, the, the velocities and speeds only change when there are collisions, right? In order to calculate the change of this thing, we have to know how many collisions there are of what different kinds and how each kind of collision will alter the speeds or the velocities of the particles, right? So I have two incoming velocities and two outgoing velocities. Um, for a particular kind, I go down to the dynamics and I say, well, the dynamics tells me if here's a particle at rest and I have another particle that's approaching it, so we have, we have the N1 particles that are at rest, we have the N2 particles. Yeah. 
we have the n2 particles, so this is a number of particles, that, are, that all have essentially the same relative velocity. So they're all, so wherever they are, they could be, I mean, I always have them attacking from this direction, but of course there's they're, they're some of them over here as well, right? They're spread uniformly around. Um, I know, my basic dynamics, my fundamental microscopic dynamics will tell me in a collision between one of these particles and one of these particles where the impact parameter is some amount d and the angle is some amount of angle phi, it'll tell me how this guy coming in this way will, will go out and how this guy who initially is at rest will recoil. Right? So that's all pure dynamics. And then what we, we said was, okay, I want to know how many such collisions between the N1s and the N2s they're going to be in unit time, a unit time dt. We calculated a little area for this cross-section for that kind of collision. And we said, well, if this thing's traveling, if the relative velocity is v, in order for this collision to occur in this time, it has to be somewhere in this region whose length in this direction is VDT. And so for each target molecule, there's a little target region you can think of that one of the N2 particles has to be in if it's going to suffer a collision. If I knew how many were in these regions, I would then know how many collisions there would be. I would then know how many particles have their velocity changed from this incoming to that outgoing and have their velocity changed from this thing being at rest to that recoil, right? And then I can add all that stuff up. And then we got to the critical point, which is, well, how do I get that number? And the answer was having, I, so what I've sketched here are all these little target regions where a collision, because these are these are my these little guys are my n1s, right? So for each n1, it has a target region. There's a total volume that these target regions take up. And now, what I imagine is that the proportion of the, the n2 particles that happen to be in these target regions is the same as the proportion that these target regions make to the entire volume. Okay, that's the answer. Um, Maxwell makes this move with the word since. Boltzmann makes this move without saying anything about it, but just saying it's obvious what this calculation is. Right? And this is the key thing. Now, the question was, what's the status of that assumption that was so obvious to Maxwell and Boltzmann when they did this calculation that they didn't even remark on it? Um, what I want to say is the assumption is an assumption in, uh, of statistical independence, right? So this is just technical, right? So what am I saying? I'm saying um, the, the positions, sorry, I can't, I can't even spell, it's probably spelled wrong. It certainly doesn't have two N's in a row. <laughs> um, um, the positions, the, the places where the N2 particles happen to be at this moment are uncorrelated to the places where the target regions happen to lie at that moment, right? So that's just what it is to say that these two things are statistically independent. It's to say that knowing, for example, that you're looking at a particular target region 
would not change the likelihood of finding a particle, finding one of the N2 particles there. Okay? And what I want to say is that there's a, a fundamental assumption in giving explanations in what we think of as a successful or completed explanation that when, a when systems are statistically independent in certain ways, we think that requires no further explanation. It's when they're statistically dependent that we think it does require a further explanation. Okay? Now, let me give an example of this kind of reasoning. It can often go by very quickly, and one that David will probably find a little hard to object to, because it's in his own book. <laughs> okay, so let me just read. This is in a different place, but on page that 82. It doesn't even remotely mean that I'll find it hard to object. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at, at this point, what, well, I, I, the, the issue is a little different, but the, 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 the detailed issue is different, but the main thing. So what David's doing is he's been looking at, uh, if I look at phase space, and I look at regions in phase space that would lead the entropy of my system to decrease in the future, right? instead of going up to go down, those regions will intuitively be very small and very scattered. Right? And similarly, I can look at the regions which would lead it to decrease to the past. And similarly, by the same arguments, those regions are very small and very scattered. Okay? So you can think of, I've got phase space, and I'm going to first pick out all the regions, all these funny little regions that lead to decreasing entropy of the future, and then I wish I had a different color, right? All the funny little scattered regions that lead to decreasing entropy to the past. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and here's what David has to say about them. So he says... Um, And what we've learned so far in the present chapter will then suggest that precisely the same thing must be true of any subregion of the M region of phase space of any thermodynamic system which is taken up by microstates that lead to decreases of entropy toward the past, right? He says the very same thing that we learned about decreases of entropy toward the future, we've learned about decreases of entropy toward the past. And moreover, there is patently no reason at all that these two subregions in any particular M region of phase space of the particular thermodynamic system should have any tendency whatsoever to be aligned or to be correlated or to be otherwise matched up with each other. Right? So David says there's just patently no particular reason you would expect that these funny little regions that I picked out are going to be correlated with these funny little regions that I picked out you know, in a similar but with respect to a different direction of time. And so, notice the and so, this is Maxwell's since, and Boltzmann's I'm not going to tell you. And so, the percentage of the familiarly calculated volume of either one of these, those tiny subregions, which is taken up with its intersection with the other one of those tiny subregions, will very likely be very nearly the same as the percentage of the familiarly calculated volume of the region of the phase space corresponding to that macro condition as, uh, as a whole that the latter region subregion sub takes up. So again, it's kind of statistical. If you want to know how big is the region of intersection, but Tim, this is a deeply misleading characterization of what's going on in this passage. This, this is a this is a speculate. What's going on in this passage is a speculation 
about the mathematical structure of a, of a particular probability distribution. Right. The probability distribution is being posited as a, you know, as a, as a claim about the way the world is, mm-hmm. and this is a speculation about the mathematical structure yes. of that distribution. It's right. not a math- it's, it's not, it's not just a speculation, as it were, coming from nowhere about how certain physical systems would be likely to behave. Which is the structure of the speculation that you're pointing right. to here? No, no, look, it's a very true. different kind no, it, of it is. Okay, okay, fair enough. Okay, but it was the case that you said that there was an explanatory move, or yeah, it's part of a mathematical move, absent yes. any absent any sure. particular reason to think these guys are lined up. But a mathematical reason to think that it has a certain mathematical structure. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's true. Right. That's true. I mean, this is look. There's a very in terms of the mathematics of statistical mechanics, right, um, um, something that's very often invoked, because these things are hard to solve, yes. okay? Something that's very often invoked is something that an old professor of mine used to call the Jewish proof <laughs> of a theorem, okay? Yes. The way the Jewish proof works is you write the theorem on the board, and you turn to the class, and you say, it's not true? <laughs> and, and, you know, that's it, and that's often the best we can do, and, and so on and so forth. But it has a very different structure than, 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 I mean, it doesn't seem to me a good analogy to the, to what's going on with the Anza. Well, wait, yeah, okay, so that's not, that is, it, what you just said isn't quite fair. It's supposed to be, it's supposed to be a way of analyzing, as best we can guess, what the Anzats is claiming, okay? It's not supposed to be the Anzats itself. No, no, but, but, but what you just characterized is a part, right? That is, you're, you're, the, the professor could not have said, <laughs> yeah. here's my theorem. Yeah. These will tend to be, sti- not to be statistically independent. Right. It's not true. Right. You say, what the hell are you talking no, about? No, no, Why should right. I expect that? No, I agree. This, okay. is, this is a guess that, about the mathematical that, that, structure. It, yeah, but it this, is also this the is case that, that the statistical independence Look, I, you could say, here's what I want to, and, and I, I knew we would disagree about this, but let me just try and say it. Okay. You can like very abstractly say, look, there are any two features, phi yeah. and not phi. Yeah. And, well, you have no more reason to expect or be satisfied if you find out whatever phi is, that the thing has phi that has not phi. Mm-hmm. And one could sort of plug that in. Okay, no reason to expect things to be statistically independent or statistically dependent. Those are both things that could happen. And in either case, if they happen, there would be an equal demand or lack of demand for a further explanation, right? My claim is that as a matter of fact, I mean, certainly in the case of Maxwell and Boltzmann, maybe not in the case of you, although this, this I agree that yeah. Maxwell and Boltzmann uh, okay. historically, as far as okay. I know, yeah. Um, and I, I want to agree with that, right? I want to say, I think in certain cases, the holding of statistical independence, I, I, let me take one more example. All right, suppose I start flipping coins, and I have a, a friend in, in, in Australia who's flipping coins, okay? And we're just recording our heads and tails. So now we have these strings, and we can test for statistical independence, right? We can just ask, given that I came up with a heads on my 18th throw, or whatever throw, was there any correlation between my results and his results? Okay, so that's a straightforward question about the nature of these actual empirical distributions. If we find there is no such correlation, I think our reaction is, yeah, of course. 
right? It's not as if we say, why? That's, an, that's a remarkable thing. <laughs> I need to understand why there's no correlation between my coin throwing, throwing here and the coin throwing in, in, in Australia. If we found there was a correlation, if we found that somehow he was getting heads, the, 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 that finding out that I got heads on a thir- certain throw would increase my ability to predict whether he got heads or not, that there was some informational relation between those two, we would find absolutely astonishing and absolutely in demand of further explanation. But can I ask you a question yeah. about this? This claim that at a certain moment the explanatory task is done, yeah. or at a certain moment we can go home, or, yeah. or something like that, I want to understand what kind of claim it is what kind of claim it is about the way the world is, okay? Yeah. Um, one can imagine several ways to read such a claim. One could read such a claim, you know, in a trivial way, psychologically or sociologically. When you say this, everybody starts smiling, or, or when you say this, everybody's happy, and everybody's yeah. ready to go home, okay? Um, but if we were to read it that way, and I take it that's not the way you want to read it, or not exactly, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth. If one were to read it that way, then the next thing to do would be to want an explanation of, of why people behave that way. Right. And, uh, and, uh, um, and it seems to me that, the, you know, the, the kind of explanation I would want to provide of why people behave that way is a sort of mechanical explanation based on certain posits about their structure and, uh, uh, and so on and so forth. A natural selection explanation, which has to do with them with them adapting themselves well to what actual circumstances in the world are, and I would want to know more about the origins of those actual circumstances in the world. That's one way to read it. Another way to read it is, no, it's not a psychological or sociological peculiarity of human beings, per se. It's something much more general and with more force behind it than that. It's some kind of, you know, something close to an analytic or a priori or something pretty strong principle of rationality um, of some kind. Okay. Um, and then the third thing is, um, it's just, it, the third possibility is it's just an empirical fact that is once we get to a certain point, we come to a situation where we're, where we're in a position to say, given the known empirical facts, added to what we've just said, we have, a, we have a dedu- something like a deduction of the, uh, of the explanandum. Um, and then it's all just, you know, there are some empirical facts which we mention and others which we don't because everybody's so familiar with them. But they all have this same status of being straightforward empirical facts. Good. So my inclination, as, as you, you'll anticipate, is, is very much the third one. Right. I'm wondering how this is for, and, and, yeah. and, and given somebody's, if, given somebody whose, expo, whose inclination is toward the third one, it's odd to say, well, then we can stop. Yeah, we can stop if this is an empirical fact that's familiar to everybody, but why not mention all the empirical facts, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, um, So so yours clearly isn't the third one. Absolutely. And I want to know more about what Okay, so, yeah, and and I think this this, this actually takes us back to the first day when I said I was puzzled about the nature of statistical mechanics that I didn't see 
since it's not postulating new ontology, and for me not postulating new laws, right? Right. You're going to say it is. Right. But I, I, I don't think it's postulating right. new laws. Right. What's it doing? Right. 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 So, what I would say is this. I think, it, of course it's true that people smile, or that or that Maxwell could write since, right? Right. right. Or Boltzmann could write obviously. Right. Okay. Right. That's an empirical fact. Right. Um, I think it's because why are they smiling? They're right. smiling because they recognize they've achieved something where the something I'm now going to describe in, in, in non-psychological terms. Right. Okay. Good. And what makes them happy as what usually makes us happy is our belief that we've achieved something we wanted to achieve where right. the thing we want to achieve is not itself being happy, right? The right. thing we want to achieve is some objective thing. Gotcha. Right? Yes. What's the objective thing? Yes. It's having an explanation of the phenomenon, right? No, but I'm asking what that meant and you're just repeating. But you can say, okay, what's the details of that? What, what constitutes an explanation? What right. I'm suggesting, I'm trying to give you the details. I'm saying, well, in certain cases, if you get down and the fundament, and a fundamental principle is this, right. then you've completed an explanation. No, but Tim, and, and then I'm saying, why is the explanation done at that point? Now, there are several possible answers to this. Possible answer one, what are you, an idiot? I mean, I just can't reason with you. Obviously, the explanation is done. Another answer might be, oh, because once we get to this point, all we have to do is add well-known empirical facts, and we have a deduction. And then, and, and I know, I, 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 I don't think your position is exactly the first, and I know your position isn't the second. Well, I, I'm not sure I'm not what's fine. in between them. I mean, look, the, the, what are you, an, an idiot would be, to say, I can't say anything more detailed at this point, right? right. If you don't see it, right. we're done. Right. <laughs> I am trying to answer that. I'm actually trying yeah. to get rather precise yeah. about what is this special feature which, when, we, when our theory seems to work with this as an assumption, yeah. we think there's no further grounds to need to explain that assumption. Right. Right. I'm trying to get as precise as I can about it. Now, if you can, you, you, can, you can react, and I think maybe then there just will be a wall, right. and say, okay, but I look at that statistical independence assumption, and it seems to me, you know, it's like phi and not phi. It's, 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 it's that if they were statistically dependent, right. that would require an explanation, and if they're statistically independent, that would require an explanation. Now, or it might be what, a fundamental law. Yeah, what, yeah, what, well, it, now we're going to have to get into why right. you think fundamental laws are explaining. I don't think your fundamental laws are explaining because I don't think they have enough juice to be explaining, right? So, but this, okay, but maybe up. this is, maybe this is, and this will come up again and again so we don't have to beat it to death yeah, yeah, right yeah. now, but look, Here's a way to put the question that I think will expose some of what's going on behind it on both of our parts. Yeah. Suppose somebody says, what is all the fuss about? You, you know, I give David what he wants. Just say it's, a, it's an additional empirical fact that's well known. What's all, the, what, what, what's all the anxiety to resist that? What's all the... Uh, what's going on? Well, what's the... So in this case, what's David the, what's wants the to do like that? Give him what he wants. But, but in this case, the question is, what's the? I mean, look, there are two yeah. things to say about this. Yeah. One is, and I'll, I'll repeat. Shelley Goldstein often says this, and I think it's very profound. Yeah. When it comes to statistical explanation, and this, if you, so if if this went by too quickly, I mean, this is a picture of phase space, and these dots 
are, as it were, the micro-conditions that lead to what is in some sense unusual behavior, right? In, in particular, say, entropy going down to the future. So, you know, these dots represent the, 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 the micro-states of the, of the lukewarm water that lead to it spontaneously segregating into ice and boiling water, right, into the future. What Shelley often said, and that would be, of course, contrary to the laws of thermodynamics, right? That would just be a straightforward violation of what we take the laws of thermodynamics mean. What Shelley often says is, the bad set exists, right? There are such states. No amount of talking, no amount of waving your hands are going to make those go away, right? They exist. We're there so we're together right. so far. So yeah. the question then is, given that they exist, but in fact we never see them, what kind of situation can we be in where we feel like it's no longer, it, that, we, that it's, it's explained, there's not a mystery, or we don't need to say any more to be happy with that? Right? That fact. Um, um, now, I... So well, here's I, one thing you could say. Here's one thing you could say. They, you know, there, there are fundamental laws you could write down which entail that they rarely occur. Okay? Now, that's something you don't want to do. Right. Right. Good. And, and I think it'll be... I think it'll be useful to elucidate what lies behind the resistance to doing right. it that way. Right. Yeah, and that's because at the micro level, I don't... I, right. So the reason is, I think, the ultimate ontology of the world is given by the exact micro state and the way it evolves. Right. And that all of that stuff is determined by the microdynamics, and there's no room for any more laws. You don't, right. I don't think what logic would be room. doing. Yeah, I don't they, think, they, I don't could, they could role. be telling you how often trajectories of this kind or that kind occur. But you, see, I, I don't think laws help. You know, <laughs> I mean, I think laws they laws influence the behavior of things. Yeah. Okay, uh -huh. and what you're telling me is you've got laws that don't influence the behavior of things. Well, I, I they summarize facts. They summarize facts about distributions or something. Well, that may have to be the way they... Okay, okay. Right. So, so I, I guess all I wanted to do for the moment is bring out right. that what's going on behind this, that there is a move which might op otherwise look easy or obvious or something. What the hell? David wants this. Give it to him. Um, that there's a deep reason why somebody might not want to give me that, right. okay? And it has to do with ideas about the metaphysics of law and and so on and so forth. And presumably we'll be discussing that's that right. one. That's right. And look, when you say, well, why don't you just aim it? I'm not sure what other well-known empirical facts, you kept coming back to this phrase, well-known empirical facts. Yeah. I'm not right. sure, what, what are the well-known empirical facts the, that you have to appeal to? Or, or, uh, yes, not, the ansatz is not a well-known empirical fact. What do you mean? Yeah, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's something such that it, it's something which, like many other empirical facts that we come to believe, if we suppose that it's true, um, um, we get good explanations of uh, of what we see. But that's not a well. I mean, that just means something different than a well-known empirical fact. Well, what you say is it's a hypothesis that leads okay, to good. Yeah, I, I, in the sense that, say, the existence of electrons is a well-known empirical fact, or something like that. Yeah. Okay. I, 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 we don't have to quibble about what to call it. Yeah, it's something. It's a posit about the way the world is that comes up in our scientific theorizing that we may have good reason to adopt. Um, that we have some combination of empirical and theoretical reasons for thinking is true. Blah blah blah. Right. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So, yeah. So we're not going to. But hopefully, is everybody? Does everybody understand why we're why we're 
at odds here because <laughs> I think it's important. Right. And, uh, and no doubt it'll come out more um, yeah. um, late. And if people want to interrupt us yeah, at yeah. this point, you know, that would be that would probably be good. I just want to know if this would be a good time to ask you guys to talk more about the status of laws, or is that for another lecture? I think that first of all, we're going to have we're, we're flying somebody in from Budapest um, um, to give a talk about this. Um, who will who will a little later in the semester, and no doubt, Tim and I both will have lots to say after that. But I think Barry is going to is going to is you know that that is the time to have a full blown. If you disagree, of course, I'm. Well, I let me say. Two words. Okay. I, I don't think you'll disagree with what I'm going to say. Um, David and Barry are coming from a kind of Lewisian picture that what makes a claim of law is that it's informative in a certain way about the world. It gives you useful information or good advice about, maybe good advice if you follow it, about how to set your subjective probabilities for what you'll see in the world. Okay. Um, there's no doubt from that point of view let's just take this I agree that the ansatz for example has exactly that status right I think it's really good advice if someone says you know make a guess about how many collisions there are going to be of this kind in the next minute we both agree that the ansatz is really good advice From David's point of view, if it's good enough advice and it's simple enough, ergo it's a law. And then he'll say, ah, I've explained this by something like a DN model or a gnomic subsumption model. Right, right. Okay? Right. I don't think, even though it's good advice, it's a law. I think that if, if, if in, in the next five minutes it happened that the ansatz were to fail, right, and the, and the water were to actually segregate, that no law of physics would have been broken. So what do you think is... What do you think that the laws laws are? I think they're the, the, the micro laws, the microdynamical laws. In this no, case, but she's asking a different question. What, what, what do you think what, it is to be a law? What I think it is to be a law, I think laws are, have their own ontological status. I don't want to induce them to anything else. I think there are different kinds of things when you do metaphysics, and it's important to get your categories right about what kind of, as it were, entities there are. You're using entity in a very bland Term, and that one of the entities in the physical world is physical law. And, and, the, and physics would would uh, so so what what would physics is trying to find out what they are. Oh, okay. You know, all these physicists who say, "What am I looking for? I'm looking for this thing I can write on uh, on a T-shirt." <laughs> you know, what are they looking for? For me, what they're looking for is an expression of this thing, a physical law, which I think there is such a thing. Okay, that's what they're, and I think that makes sense of what they're doing. That's but, what they're but, searching but for. But you think that 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 it's a distinct, different things from other things that we think are there, in the world. Sure, if you, I mean, the, the the metaphysical nature of laws is unlike the metaphysical nature of electrons or wave functions. I mean, there are things that you can locate in space and time in a certain way, and things you can ascribe mass to in a certain way, and things like wave functions. Okay, they have kind of a different status, and they're more problematic. And I think there are things. I think there's just a fact. I think it could be a fact, it could have been a fact, it turned out not to be, that the laws of the actual universe we live in are, say, Newtonian mechanics. And that would just be a fact about that. So it's strange for me to think that all these things that I thought all along, and all along is not that long for me, 
Mm-hmm. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, all these things that I saw were telling me about, um, uh, you know, things that are on the, you know, on the, things that have different metaphysical status from mm-hmm. law as you're describing are somehow, by getting to know them, are explaining the laws? It's just They're providing evidence for the laws. Look, the, take the laws of Newtonian mechanics. Okay. I think the laws of Newtonian mechanics are as it, if, if they had obtained, they would it'd be a kind of physical fact about the universe that determined how particles move through time, right? How their positions change through time. How do I find out about such laws? Well, I find out about such laws. I can't see the laws, right? They're not immediately observable. Right. I find out about the laws by seeing how the particles move through time and trying to come up with you know, reasonable hypotheses about what the basic laws are that are governing that motion. But I mean, there are there there are things that we don't. That, that's not the only thing we don't see. But sure. Um, how do the facts I'm learning about these things that I don't see somehow support evidence for this other thing we don't see that supposed to that's supposed to drive? No, I'm, I'm not following. Because I'm, I'm not speaking intelligibly. The, 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 the evidence, the things we do see are essentially the motions of large-scale bodies. That's what we see. Everything else, for example, the structure of space and time, to take a, a, an example that goes in yet a different ontological category for me, you can't directly see the structure of space and time. But I think there is space and time, and it has a structure. And they ask me, well, how do you find out about it if you can't see it? The answer is, well, because what I do see are these motions of these, uh, of these macroscopic bodies, and I have theories that postulate a certain space-time structure and certain laws that are couched in terms of that space-time structure that would govern the motion of the microscopic constituents of the bodies. Mm-hmm. So taking that package together, they'll have implications about the motions of the macroscopic bodies. That's the evidence. That's okay. where the context is. Let me, let, me just, let me just break in here for one second. And probably we shouldn't dwell too long on this now because there's going to be lots of other opportunities for it to come up. But here's very crudely, I think, an image that it's useful to have in one's head. I don't know if Tim will object to this characterization or not. I think probably not. Um, there are two big traditions of thinking about the metaphysical status of laws in the philosophy of science. Um, One is this, you know, Tim used several times in the last, uh, 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 in the last couple of minutes, the locution that the laws govern the motions of the particles or that the laws govern the behaviors of physical systems. And there is this, you know, as a historical matter, this is surely a metaphor for civil law or, or something like that. There is an image of laws as you know, the sovereigns of the world or the governance of the world or, or what provides the governance of the world. These are distinct things from the masses that are moving around and, and from their trajectories. and some. They're the separate thing about the world that makes it the case that, that's what the, that one or the other of those is what the trajectories have to be. Okay. And then there's another tradition going back to Hume and, and, and especially developed by people like Lewis and by people like Barry, who's going to come talk to us, that's um, uh, what you might call a descriptive um, understanding of what, uh, of what laws are. Um, one doesn't 
one doesn't see um, the laws as in any way imposing anything on the world. Rather, what they amount to is a certain particularly, if it's available, a certain particularly kind of compact and informative description or summary uh, uh, of what the world is doing. And and I'll let Tim expand on this. It is, it is at least a statistical feature. It's not a feature I'm sure I am. Well, maybe I understand some things about it, maybe I don't. Um, it's a statistical feature of people who, who think in the governance image that um, there's a strong idea that fundamental laws ought to be only dynamical ones. Um, um, if you're thinking in this descriptive sense about what it is to be a law, you're going to be much less restrictive um, about it. Does that sound yeah, that's does that sound right? I mean, I don't know if I know exactly how to spell out right. the connection between the governance image and the conviction that they need to be dynamical. Right. And, and maybe we should... Yeah. But it certainly is a that, that statistical is, feature, a sociological right. feature. Right. Right. Um, um, good. And I think that's a good... That's a good um, contrast to keep in the back of one's mind over the next couple of weeks of discussion. And like I said, we're, we're flying somebody and from Budapest right, to resolve it. And, and, and it might, I mean, <laughs> I mean let, me, let me see, because I mean, this is maybe just repeating what I just said, but it will be helpful to understand where these things come apart. So I know how to say, let me say, I'm going to say something I know how to say and I'm not sure how David can say it. Okay. What I want to say is, again, take the glass of water and ask yourself, is it physically possible that this lukewarm glass of water in the next five minutes, is this among the things that are physically possible for it, that it spontaneously segregate into ice and boiling water? My answer is, yeah, that is physically possible. That's something that would violate no laws of physics. Okay? That leaves a puzzle, you might say, why doesn't it ever happen? Why don't we ever see it? I think this is the way we sort of set up, I mean, the, sort of the obvious way to set up our situation here. And on my approach, that turns out to be true at the end of the day. Right? That that could happen, it's happening would violate no zero physical laws. Nonetheless, I think I understand perfectly well why it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen because, in fact, things are statistically independent in certain ways, and that itself is an end of the explanation and satisfies me. Wait, David, at the end of the day, is going to have to say no. If wait, I wait, no, no, but wait, well, Tim. Wait, oh, let me just yeah. interrupt you. I mean, I'm sorry. Maybe we're yeah. going around in circles. When you say, I believe that because I believe that things are statistically independent in mm -hmm. a certain way, I think you're not expressing exactly what... what what you want to say there because what, if you say it that way it sounds like the statistical independence is being appealed to as a, as a separately known fact about the way the world happens to be whereas you mean something more like absent evidence to the contrary I assume that they're statistically independent you're making a finer distinction that I know how to deal with. Um, for the for reasons that would be familiar to you, we both believe, I guess, in fact, this, this is just a factual question. Okay. Right? Yes. 
in terms Good. of say the onsats. Good. Just a factual question. Right. You mean whether it's true? We both believe it's true. Correct. I believe that it's it it it's true. Th this is the kind of truth, the holding of which raises no further questions in my mind I see. Okay. something to be said okay. about it. That's what I, I that's right. good, good, good. Right. good. Yeah. So, so viewing the, the laws the way you do, I'm yeah. just curious, would that, does that lead to like a, a, a giving ontological like metaphysical status to more things than... Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. There's, a, there's an ontological category law of laws, laws, sure. Well, I mean, other than that, I mean. Oh, other than that? Yeah. Not by itself. Sounds like I a mean, trick question. Yeah, I'm not, I mean, not, I'm not, not automatically. <laughs> I'm, I'm, look, so again, maybe it'll be helpful. Some people know this about me, some people don't. I think philosophy is insufficiently self-aware of certain problems that come up. So, for example, when you do metaphysics, often... You say, okay, I believe that there's an X. What kind of thing is it? Right? What, what is this X you believe in? And, well, there's a tradition that goes back to Aristotle, if not before, of saying, here are the categories of being. There are substances, qualities, quantities, relations, blah, blah, blah. So you have this set of pigeonholes. And, okay, you believe in X's. I bring out my Aristotelian or my Kantian or whoever's set of pigeonholes, and I say... To understand what you mean, tell me which pigeonhole this gadget goes in. Okay? My response to this often is to say, it's not one of your goddamn pigeonholes. Like, Aristotle didn't have it. Okay? Um, I think there are something like wave functions when you're doing physics. Okay? That when you write down a, a, a wave function as a mathematical thing, it's sort of a representation of something physical. If you ask me, but what is that thing? Is it like a field? Is it like a particle? Is it like a this? Is it like a that? The, I think the right answer is, it ain't like any of those things you're familiar with, right? It's a discovery of physics. There are these other things, wave functions. Let's see what we can say about them, but let's not think that the only intelligible thing we can say about them, or the only way we can come to understand what they are, is by assimilating them to some pre-existing ontological category that was handed down to us from somebody. I think laws are like that. Laws have physical laws are entities or there are facts about them, objective facts about them. They're not subjective. They don't have to do with our minds. There could be physical worlds with no humans in them and no beliefs and no anything that have physical laws. I don't think they're like Particles. I don't think they're like fields. Okay. I mean, I can say a bunch of things they're not like. Because <laughs> you mentioned in passing that you, you, you think that space and time are, are, are like that. So yes. Yeah, sure. Okay. Right. So if we were to take the line of reasoning that took you to believe that laws are entities, right? Yes. It seems like that 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 argument could be made for other things. I mean, you know, there are so many different physical theories that that say there are different number of kinds of things in existence. I was just wondering sure. like, if that line of reasoning would... would um, maybe she's asking, Tim, if, there's a, if there's a clear... Which is maybe a good question. Yeah. Is, there a, um, is there an interesting relationship, say, between being metaphysically realist about laws 
and being uh, substantivalists, say, about space-time or something like that. Yeah, I mean, would that... Would, I, I, would or is that just a coincidence? Look, you're perfect. So let me see if I'm understanding correctly. A physicist comes up to me tomorrow and he says, look, I have a brand new physical theory. You know, it's got globes in it. And I say, what, what the hell are those things? And he says, well, look, they're, they're new. Okay, um, you're, they're, they're not—they're not anything that will be familiar to you, or this, I mean, some gyres or whatever these people do. Okay, um, right. I mean, yes. I'm going to go in. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go in and be open-minded. I'm going to ask him, okay, can you explain your theory to me? It'll probably have some mathematical apparatus. I want that explained. I want to understand how postulating these things ultimately relates to the motions of macroscopic bodies, because that's, that's what our evidence is, right? If he postulates these things, and I can't see any relation to that. I mean, uh, there'll be general questions about under what conditions should I take this seriously, right, as a good ontological account with a new ontological gadget in it. I think those just get subsumed under the general question of how we bring evidence to bear on physical theory. That's a very complicated question. It has to do with details of evidence. It has to do with simplicity. It has to do with the availability of alternative accounts. I mean, there are lots of pieces that go into making evaluation. Can I, but, but just hold up, because I'm just getting a little concerned that we're yeah. getting trapped um, um, in a conversation that we'll have time to flesh out later. But maybe it's worth saying a word... Um, 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 and I don't want to. I don't want to tar you with any more of this than you're eager to be tarred with. Okay, and, and I don't know exactly what the relations are, but it's a, it's a different angle from which maybe to bring out more about what the view is. So look, <coughs> there is a there is an intellectual background to. Um, I mean, whether this is actually <laughs> historically the case with Boltzmann and Maxwell, Tim will know more about than I will. But there's certainly a, an intellectual background to the way these kinds of moves were absorbed by physics generally, okay? Moves like, um, you know, I forget what word Ma Maxwell said so, or Maxwell since. said since, okay, so Maxwell's saying since, and Boltzmann's saying obviously, um, and so on and so forth. There's a move that goes back to people like Laplace and so on and so forth um, um, uh, that goes under the name of principles of indifference, okay? Um, and there's an idea like the following. Um, if it's the case that I have no information what... So, so somebody gives me two boxes and they say there's a marble in one of the boxes, okay? Um, and that's all they tell me. And moreover, it's the case, this is not particularly easy to imagine in reality, but let's imagine it. Um, it's supposed to be the case that I have no information of any kind whatsoever that bears in any way, shape, or form um, on the question of which of the two boxes the marble is in. There's a long-standing suspicion that it's more or less just a translation of that statement into mathematical terms, okay? To say the probability to assign to its being in either one of the boxes is 50%, okay? That to do anything else, to translate this claim that you have no information, that your epistemic relation to the situation is that you have no information whatsoever 
um, that bears either way on the question of which box the marble is in is more or less just the same thing as saying you would assign a probability 50% of it being in one box or the other box. And to the extent that this isn't obvious right off the bat, to the extent that it needs any argument at all, there's an obvious symmetry argument. Okay? Um, any assignment of probabilities other than that would generate um, an asymmetry in, in the probability assignments to the two boxes, which doesn't respect the perfect symmetry that was inherent in your description of your epistemic situation. Everybody with me? Okay. Um, and it's important to point out about this argument, okay, and this is a much more, a stronger claim than any kind of claim I think Tim wants to make. Well, I, I'll, I'll let you, um, um, I'll let you go with that. It's a funny, it's a funny thing that there's just a, there's just a, so there's a bunch of things here. Um, if we then use these probabilities, say, in statistical mechanics to explain why ice melts or smoke spreads or something like that, people might be puzzled along the following lines. Um, they might say, gee, so the explanation of why the smoke is spreading and so on makes some reference to my epistemic relationship to it. Um, that sounds weird, but if, these, if that's where these probability assignments come from, it seems like it is involved. There's a whole, there's a whole mishigas about that. I just want to point for the, for the moment to, to a much more straightforward logical point. It's just not the case that the only available translation into the mathematics of probabilities of the statement, I have no clue which which box the marble is in um, is to assign equal probabilities to both of them is just wrong, okay? It's just overlooking another thing you could do, a much more natural thing you could do, which is to say to the guy when he asks you for your probabilities, to say to him, which part of I have no clue did you not understand, okay? I have no clue, okay? I abstain from assigning probabilities um, um, to the marble being in this box or that box. That respects the symmetry inherent in my epistemic situation exactly as much as the assignment of equal probabilities, and it respects other features of my epistemic situation, features like I have no clue, okay, which is my epistemic situation, much better than the equal assignment of probabilities. So, I think floating around in the zeitgeist, okay, for a long time, um, was the suspicion that the statement the probabilities are uniform or equal or something like that is very intimately related to the statement, I have no clue, okay? Um, and it's funny that that shouldn't have struck everybody as very strange very early on. Because once you've assigned probabilities, it feels like you've got a lot. You've got a definite set of expectations about what frequencies will be if the cases are repeated, blah, 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 blah. This should have struck everybody as too easy, okay? And it should have struck everybody that this wasn't saying something, that this couldn't have been the appropriate translation into mathematical terms of, I have no clue, okay? But I think... And, and you can correct me because you know more about the history of this. For lots of people, the way lots of physicists thought about statistical mechanics 
incorporated some intuition like this? Well, uh, okay, so on the... This will take us a little... It's not that I want to disagree with what you're saying, and maybe physicists thought about probability that way. Let me point out the following thing. I, I don't really know what to say about Maxwell or Boltzmann. I never used the word probability in anything I just said. Okay? And I certainly never said, if you're ignorant about something, use some probability distribution. Right? So let me at least point out... No, but let's, yeah, but let, but you can translate it easily into frequencies. A guy gives you a bunch of box, pairs of boxes. But, but, but look, you can... Yeah. The translation is going to be important. Why? David's going to worry about, in his statistical postulate, a probability distribution over, say, microstates at the beginning of the universe. Okay? One might wonder, from an ontological point of view, and I think you know, the answer for David is not really an ontological claim that we'll talk about. From an ontological point of view, what the hell is that? Okay? I understand the universe started out in some state. But what do you mean it had a probability of starting out, a certain probability of starting out in other states? Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if there were a universe-producing mechanism that had, you know, um, uranium atoms decaying in it, you might understand that. But we don't think, you know, but not, not embedded in that. You might say, I don't even understand what a probability distribution over initial states of the universe is supposed to mean, right? Okay? This claim about statistical independence. The, the ansatz isn't like that. The ansatz is not a claim about the probability of anything. It's a, it's a claim about actual frequencies. Mm -hmm. And the actual frequencies in the world either obey it or they don't. Right. And a statistical independence claim is also not a claim about probabilities. Mm -hmm. It's an actual claim about frequencies, distributions, frequencies of actual things in the world. Right. Okay. So is everything. I mean, I mean, you know. But okay, we'll get to that later. That is, as you know, so on. My view is the is the is the talk about probability distribution. Right, but you can. But there is a. Yeah, the story that has to be told there. Prima facie, I want right. to see that right. that you can tell this story and not mention things like probability distributions. Right. In sure. which case, right. the issue where did they think these probability distributions were coming from right. never arises. Right. What they did think was that again. What they thought was that. Yeah, you'd expect things to be statistically independent. Or, or just they are statistically independent or something like that, right? That's actually what happens. That's what the okay. sense is, right? Uh, it, given given that I have no information bearing on, you know, well, that's not again, the way. I, all right, now we're just we're just going to have to say you would put it that way. I right. put it this way. I claim that they're statistically independent, and if that claim turns out to be true, and there's a fact about it, this is really a, a straightforward empirical claim, as it were, mm -hmm. an actual claim, mm -hmm. it requires no further explanation. Mm -hmm. My explanatory work is done. Mm -hmm. That's the way I would put it. Right. And okay. I said that without mentioning anything about good, good, knowing good. anything good, or good, anything good. like that. Good, good, good. Okay? Good, good, good. I'm sorry, this was That's a long a, day. Yeah, right. Right. I mean, there were other what? questions. But I, I was wondering if you could say more about why it should be that statistical independence doesn't require explanation as opposed to dependence. So you get that, that coin flip case, mm -hmm. and that's certainly a case where it doesn't, where the, the dependents would certainly sort of cry out for explanation. Yes. But you might think of what's going on there is that we expect independence in that case, and dependence would be very shocking, and if dependence was true, we wouldn't have a ready explanation, and we'd have to go find it. There often seem to be cases where independence would be something that would sort of that's where they cry out for So give me kind of example you have in mind. I mean, uh, there's a statistical dependence between my dropping this cup and it hitting this thing that I'm on. And if it turned out, we did an experiment 
and those two things ended up being physically independent, that would be something that would be... I'm, I'm not sure. I can't even make sense of what that claim is mathematically. Well, but you just record every time that I drop the cup and it hits the thing versus I drop the cup and it, I don't know, flies in the ceiling there. There's the, the events of the, the cup dropping and the cup hitting. But it's not, you don't, uh, statistical independence has a very specific meaning here. What you're just telling me is that cups always drop. That's true. No, I'm just, you can, you can figure out if cups always drop and if they stop, I mean, if it turned out that cups drop and then... I mean, I, those are, look, the, the cup, two possibilities. Whenever I let go of a wait, 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 let me just say okay. two possibilities. Whenever I let go of a cup, it drops. Here's another possibility. Suppose whenever I, I let go of a cup, 80% of the time it drops and 20% of the time it goes up. Both of those, as far as I'm concerned, require further explanation. Neither of them would you stop at and say, oh, obviously, right? The cup, the fact that the cup always drops suggests that you're pretty close to the fundamental laws of physics. That you know, I think the fundamental laws of physics are exceptionless, and therefore. What it suggests is there ought to be some root, right? Whereas if, if, if cups went down 80% of the time and up 20% of the time, I'd think, gee, there must be something about cups that are different or, you know. Um, but neither of those, uh, neither of those occurring would count. Would just, there, there's just no, no, you have to give me things, you, you, have, you have to give me something to talk about there being statistically independent. The example you gave me just isn't one. That, that's fine. So just, just take a case where you expect there to be statistical dependence. I don't care what it is. You, you can give it to The you. only cases I can give you are things where things have interacted in the past or I think somebody set them up in some way. Right, so suppose... So that, 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 that's just the claim that in, unless something like that has happened, then it seems to me this is the default position. But if you then found out that those things weren't acting the way that you... In, in other words, there, there's no case, I think, where the default position is statistical dependence. There are no such cases. That's why you can't give me one. It's always the case. This is like Reichenbach's criterion. You know, I mean, we're sort of close to the stuff that Reichenbach did about about finding causation because of things, you know, being statistically dependent on each other. I think the default position is always. It's never the case that the default position is statistical dependence. We always think that requires an explanation. Okay. Well, I mean, so. I got my barometer and I got my storm. Yeah. And those things are uh, strongly positive. Absolutely. Related. And then I start doing experiments on my new barometer yeah. and seeing how well it works. Yeah. And it turns out that it works real terrible. And there's actually no statistical relationship between my barometer's reading and there being storms. It's just as independent as coin flips in the United States and coin flips in Okay. So now you've got, got a funny barometer. Right? Yeah. So it seems like I might want an explanation for why my barometer is working so badly. Right? What? My barometer is crap. What? Right. You'd want an explanation for why the barometer is broken. But given that it's broken, that it then becomes statistically independent of the weather, you wouldn't say that's a puzzle. That it's, only, I mean, it's not a puzzle. That would be an explanation for an independence, I would have thought. But all you're doing is you're saying, I, I have systems that have been designed to produce a dependency. If now I come across such a system and it doesn't produce that dependency, of course I'm going to wonder why is this system different than the other ones which reliably do. Uh -huh. And I'm going to look for an explanation. That explanation is going to be to explain why your barometer is broken. But you wouldn't characterize that as an explanation of 
I would characterize it as an explanation why the barometer is broken. But not as an explanation I would say, given the barometer is broken, then you don't need no further explanation for why there's statistical independence. Well, the barometer being, I would have thought the barometer is being broken as an explanation of the independence. Why? Well, I mean, all, all that would tell you is that the re look, regular barometers have a certain, there are all kinds of dependencies there could be, right? No, I mean, I have a very specific but, notion of broken in mind. But, like but, but, but yeah, there's a very, you, you think barometers, it's not just that they're dependent, but they're dependent in a certain way, right? Right. The, 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 the barometer does this when there's going to be rain, and it does this when You can imagine a barometer where, where, as it were, doesn't have that dependency, it has a different dependency. And you'd let's say, well, you, you can't just say, well, that's because it's broken. You'd say, no, no, I have to go much further than that's why it's broken, because there's still a dependency, a different one. If you get to the point where there's just no dependency at all, it seems to me there's nothing, there's no explanation for that. I mean, once you, you, once you understand, the, the special thing is the dependency-producing thing. Once you've gotten to see why there is no dependency-producing thing, you don't need independency-producing things. Like my claim is exactly that. You don't need independence-producing gadgets. You need dependence-producing gadgets. Once you see that there's no dependence-producing gadgets, you don't need a further argument. You don't need, oh, I need now an independence-producing gadget. That's the idea that there's a default position, and, then, and, and it's deviations from the default that require explanation. That's where this position I'm taking. But I don't see that the barometer is a counterexample. I agree that, that you don't consider that. I mean, I just would have thought... No, like, I don't see why you think it is. I guess because the... So, I agree that the way it's broken is going to have to be very... There's lots of ways it could be broken and still be um, related. Still, there still be some important relationship between the barometer reading and the storm coming. But there's one way in which it can be broken in which the barometer readings and the storm breakings are totally independent. I don't mean one way in a very fine-grained sense. I mean... Right be broken in that way. And if I have this barometer, I say, man, this thing is this is not related to storms at all. And then I say, why is that? And the guy says, you're not going to believe what happened at the factory. And he tells me about some yeah. severe factory explosion. Yeah. I guess it seems to me that one thing he's done is he's explained why the barometer readings are so related to the storm occurrences, where that relationship is one of statistical independence. You, you have, you've just set up a background condition, which is an unusual one, which requires a lot of setting up, calling the thing a barometer. I mean, if, if I just pick up the cell phone and I notice something about it, some random function, I say, you know, it's doing that just seems to have nothing to do with the weather. Right? It's just statistically independent. When it beeps, you know, in this pinball program, that just seems to have absolutely, you know, seems completely statistically independent of the weather. No one thinks, gosh, I wonder why that is. Know. You know, you, you've set up a background condition, because you call it a barometer, and that has to do with people making it in a certain way, and it being fancily designed in certain ways, so that you, given all that background, you expect the dependence, and when the dependence fails, you look for an explanation. We agree about that. Yeah. But I don't see what that has to do with my, my it, 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 the reliance of your puzzle on all of this background. There's no such reliance here. No, yeah, 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 fair enough. I was just wondering about there being a general rule of statistical independence. I, mean, I, mean, I wouldn't make it that general. Maybe you're trying to generalize this far beyond. No, 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 but there this, is, you know. there is, look. I think what's going on here is something like the following. Um, um, it seems like everybody agrees 
that it's an empirical fact, it's an empirical regularity of the world that, say, absent stories you can tell about why this is designed to be correlated to that, they'll be, statistical independent, they'll be statistically independent um, from one another. Um, um, the division then comes with some people saying, boy, that in itself is an interesting regularity of the world of which I would like an explanation. Right. Okay? And, and I expect it to be explained in terms of fundamental laws or right. something like that. And, um, and you have this kind of Bartleby... But, well, I prefer not to. Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, yes, absolutely. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that's where the difference is. So right. I, I think everybody's agreeing it's a robust, you know, um, general, deep, very important, you know, empirical regularity of our world that absent stories you can tell about, you know, involving design or historical accident or something like that, which connect things to one another, they're statistically independent, okay? Um, the difference between me and Tim at that point is Tim says, great, let's go home, we're done. Right. And I say, boy, that's interesting. We've just noticed a very robust, interesting statistical regularity about the world. I'd like to find out what's right. at the bottom of it. Uh, maybe, maybe that points to the necessity of positing some new fundamental law which hadn't occurred to us yet, so on and so forth. I think that's a perfectly fair right. right. So everybody understands, yeah. I right. think that's, I think this, this particular kind of feature right. is an end of explanation. Right, right. And David does it. Right. That helps you understand why my case is right. Yeah, right. Do you think it's the end of the explanation when we have no reason to believe there's a common cause to the, the states of the individual? Mm -hmm. Yes. And you know, one thing you could say is uh, there is a kind of very complicated common cause for the positions and velocities of the N1 and N2 particles, namely the initial state of the, um, of the gas. So it seems you're going to at least to say something about the randomizing character of the dynamics to, uh, to justify statistical independence. That's, no, I mean, I don't, look, so that's a, a, a look. I mean, this is, we're going to, we're going to embed this in yet another kind of explanatory thing. Which right. to, to, to my mind, I haven't even quite worked out these typicality explanations. <laughs> so there's something else we're going to talk about. And so what I'm going to say here isn't entirely clear. Um, but we at least should be clear. There is a kind of, and, and, and now this will push a little bit more maybe in David's, I'm not sure what direction it pushes in actually. <laughs> um, of course, there's the actual precise distribution of these particles. That's a fact. And that depends on the actual precise initial state of the gas and exactly how it evolved in all detail. That's the kind of thing of which I think admits of, of, of no further, you know, no, 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 no further explanation than simply a description. This is how it started out. Given the dynamics, this is how it evolved. Okay? The fact of statistical independence, of course, this is a much more generic fact. This, is, this would hold for almost any microstate given the initial macro state of the gas. And so that seems like a really important fact. <laughs> what kind of an important fact it is? It also seems like an important kind of explain, explanatory fact. 
Right. I mean, given uh, okay, we yeah. know where we are on this. Yeah. Given a certain measure, the almost any is true. Yeah. Prior to the measure, what's true is on some initial states it holds, on others it doesn't. And and right and yes, and the the, the relevant measure comes in from the natural measure comes in from out. Which I, I okay. don't know what natural. Yeah, you don't know what natural. <laughs> but but you should you should yeah. go on, Tim. We. Well, I don't know. I mean, I mean, it was good to take questions. No, it's true. We're just you know, rattling on. Yeah. Were you okay with taking David's option B earlier and describing as a difficult independence assumption something like main priori principle of rationality something to adopt? Look, there are various gadgets here. There's the subjective feeling of happiness, which is what David was originally pointing at, which of course you think, well, that requires a psychological explanation. Why, you know, why I have a smile on my face? You know, I have to embed that in a theory of human psychology. Right. There's now you've got something different, a rationality principle. Well, a, a was a psychological wrong, B was a sort of principle of rationality. Right. I mean, I and the question is what the status of a principle of rationality is. Now, I, I, I think that's a very, very deep, difficult question about which I have very little coherent to say. I would tend to say, I would tend to put it in a way that makes it makes the, there to be an objective mind-independent fact, okay, which I would describe as a rational person recognizing that a certain explanatory requirement has been fulfilled. Where, but where the requirement having been fulfilled is not, it, that, that fact is not something I would say is necessarily dependent on human psychology. This is that a rational person is in a position to recognize. I mean, think about like truths of mathematics. So I think there's a fact that 2 plus 2 equals 4. And I think a rational person or a good mathematician will also recognize that fact. And furthermore, if they're pleased when they, when they, when they acquire mathematical truths, they will then smile. <laughs> okay? So now we have all these levels. In the mathematical case, there's kind of a completely mind-independent realm of mathematical fact. Then there's a certain psychological characteristic that people can have which allows them to recognize certain of them as being true, as obtaining. And then there's a, a, an emotional reaction you can have to that recognition. Yes? What I would like to do is, as it were, put the explanatory status of this in the analogy at the level of 2 plus 2 equals 4. Right, so you are happy with it being a rational principle. Well, but the rational principle, I mean, again, it depends on how you cash out rational principle. A rational, clear-headed person, when they see this, will then feel satisfied, and their satisfaction will leave smiles on their face. Where does that leave me? <laughs> um, now, I, I know what I just said is not at all precise, and I don't know how to make it. I mean, when you, you know, it, it would, again, all I have are analogies, like mathematics and so on, where we think, oh, yeah, now I have, now I have understanding. I mean, what we're really at is a very deep question about what constitutes understanding. David tends to, dealing with physics, focus on empirical adequacy, I think. That, that, that ultimately what he wants are principles that give him good advice for empirical, certain empirical predictions. Um, if you focus on mathematics, you say, no, no, there's something about understanding, right, Mathematical understanding that comes through a proof, through appreciating a proof. Okay? What status does that have? Well, you might say there's a kind of mind independent status that the proof has, like the proof actually proves something. 
Then there's the status you have if you're, if you're rational and you can appreciate what the proof proves. That gives you understanding. And, you know, but I, but I, I you know, this is all, I think, very, I think this is probably among the most difficult things. You know, all I can do is gesture in a, in a certain way at this point. I can't say anything very precise about so it. So you're not, you're not saying anything like a rational pr- principle would prove it. Just that, if you're rational, you would. I think, yeah, I think non. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I can say this, although then you can just say I'm, I'm just insulting people who disagree with me. <laughs> I would say any non-crazy person when they get down to this level, well, now I'm just calling. Yeah. <laughs> any non-crazy person when they get down to this level will then be satisfied. They say, now I understand. Right now, the light has come on. Right, I feel like I have insight into this behavior, this physical behavior. No, actually, I don't see why I need to deny that. It's just, it's just that. Um, um, it's just that th- th- there are differing inclinations about whether you want to tell a further story. Right, right. We want to tell a further story. Right, 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 right. right. So right. maybe that maybe that's the right way to put it. Right. You, you might say because I don't feel an inclination to need to tell another story. Right. That's the sense in which I'm taking it as a rational right. principle in the right. sense of a a fact which, when rationally recognized, pr- provides in itself understanding which requires no further, right. and actually admits of no further. I mean, I'm going to say mm-hmm. something a little stronger, mm-hmm. not just requires no further, really admits of no further, nothing that would give me a deeper comprehension mm-hmm. of this phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And David thinks there is. You can embed it in a larger program mm-hmm. that will give you a different kind of understanding mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. That, That's, that, that seems perfectly fair. Yeah. Sorry. It, I, doesn't seem quite true to me that it admits of no further explanation. I mean, they're, we're explaining the statistical independence of particle velocities with box position within the box. Is that so? So there is an explanation of why those are statistically independent. Just take the exact microstate of the world before I put the gas in the box. I, yeah, I don't think that's an explanation. I mean, this is like. Uh, again, um, and, and this goes back to what an explanation is and what kind of insight you get. So uh, go all the way back to Aristotle. Um, Aristotle says, look, so suppose every, every triangle is a particular triangle, right? Suppose I have an isosceles triangle. And suppose I have a proof, which is a perfectly good mathematical proof, that the interior angles of an isosceles triangle always equal 180 degrees, two right angles. Aristotle says, but you don't really understand it. You don't understand it until you appreciate the proof that doesn't require, doesn't depend on, or doesn't make mention of it being isosceles. You haven't gotten to the right level of generality. And even though you might say, but look, this is a more specific description of this triangle, right? Isn't that what makes this triangle have this feature? And I think Aristotle's right. He's saying, no, no, it, it, you, 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 understanding this kind of comprehension requires having identify the right level of generality of the features you're going to appeal to. And you can get too precise. And what you're, of course, there is a story about it having an exact micro-condition, and there is an important physical story about how that exact micro-condition led to this situation which, which displays this. But if that's all you understood, you would miss something. You would fail to comprehend something. Because, of course, you would have that story even if it led to something that didn't lead to this. You would have that story even if it led to anti-thermodynamic behavior. Right? You'd have the microscopic story. But you might fail to see that, my God, that was weird. Right? If the world were, if the world were anti-thermodynamic, the sense is, you want to react to that, you can say, I see how it happens. 
But God, that was weird. But isn't there something now to be explained about why, because this is not just a one-time phenomenon, we observe this statistical independence all over the place. Yes. So isn't there, some, isn't there something to be explained about why the exact microstates of these systems always display this feature? Or almost always. Well, this is this is where we're. This is exactly. This is exactly. Yeah, yeah, so there's one view which is no. That's I'm kind of yes. That's kind of the default assumption. And absent Sorry, anything. The default assumption was something about two parameters being statistically independent, not yeah. about micros, arbitrarily chosen microstates displaying a feature of statistical independence. Oh, well, no, that everything's going to be plugged into the word arbitrarily chosen there. So there's a mathematical fact, which is that given a range of possible initial states, microstates, and various measures over them, maybe a special one or maybe a pile of special ones, then it's just a mathematical fact that overwhelmingly most of them on, that on those measures <coughs> will display this. And you know, there's a question of what that seems like a relevant fact. <laughs> okay. right. But relevant for what and why is sort of why, you know, it's not that we disagree that that's a relevant fact, but there's right. a question about what the status of those measures is and what the explanatory status of the fact is, and so, you know. Good. It's, it's now seeming less obvious to me that the, na the natural measure has this kind of explanatory status that you want to ascribe to statistical independence. It's, it, it, this is a little bit more removed from our sort of intuitive the intuitive examples you're giving about right. coin flips here and in Australia. Right. And look, I, I mean, the, there's something else to say, and I haven't worked this out in my head, right? So it's not that I'm holding stuff back. We, we, we're, we're supposed to be playing two games here, one of which we were supposed to switch off on and we haven't done yet. One is to give a very general abstract characterization of statistical explanation and embedding, you know, thermodynamics in statistical theory. What I've been doing is looking at a very single, concrete right, situation and noticing that in this concrete argument, there's a very specific way in which a particular claim of statistical independence plays a role in the argument that was given. It's not at all obvious that if I now said, oh, but what instead of, instead of being monotonic, they were diatomic, and then you have to worry about how they spin, you know, there's all these other considerations that have to go into doing the scattering cross-sections, what would the relevant statistical independence claim be? Here it's very easy, it's just talking about positions in these volumes. Okay, I'm not saying that's obvious at all. Right. I'm, I am saying in these particular cases that historically started this out, this was what they used and what they thought was obvious. Okay. Now, if we, once we embed it in the larger scheme, then we're naturally going to be talking about probability measures. And it's not going to be maybe so obvious how to reduce that talk or relate that talk to this kind of talk. That's a really important point, and it's not one that I have answers to. Um, for me, if I, could, if I were convinced it couldn't be done, right, then somehow the probability talk in very many cases just, you know, it, 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 it doesn't ever get cashed out this way in any clear way. That would be a worry for me, or it would, you know, change. You know, I, I would think hard about that. Exactly. Um, just a, I want to sort of under. Um, I, I think I want to underscore something, unless it turns out it's not a thing. Which I'm, <laughs> in which case, we shouldn't underscore it. <laughs> point out it, that it's not a thing. Um, so when you, uh, 
like, just, you know, in a number of the discussions that have happened so far, especially in your discussion with, with Katie about some of these things, um, uh, you were sort of pointing out, oh, look, here are the other cases where we've got a whole lot of, you know, when we look at statistical independence, we say, oh, you know, yeah. our job, it seems like, you know, it would be crazy to think that we, that there's more to our job. Uh, you know, why does, why does my phone not, you know, predict right. the weather except when right. right. weather. Um, uh, and I was thinking that at least in, in some of those cases, I, was, I wanted to, uh, it looks like there's something that's going on there that might not be going on here. Um, which is sort of that this seems to be sort of a, a reasonable, you know, might be an arguably, you know, perfectly reasonable extension of the uh, of of this explanatory of the of, of this explanatory notion, but not kind of the, the core one. Which is that in these cases we think that there are these separate mechanisms securing facts about, you know, one and the other, um, and that we think that look, well, if in the world there are a bunch of things, including mechanisms that bring about certain phenomena, some are things, they move air around, bring about weather, other ones are little machinery bits, they make cell phones do stuff. If we have no, if we have no reason to think that, uh, or if it turns out that they have nothing to do with one another, then we shouldn't think that the phenomena that they're bringing about have something to do with one another. And I, my concern is that when you're talking about statistical independence here, we don't, uh, that, which might have been something that some people yeah, were yeah. leaning on when they were okay. finding that reasonable. Right. And rather so, so let me say, I, I think I understand what you're saying. I think the problem is hashing out the phrase separate mechanisms. So if I ask, for example, here, here's an attacking, here's an attacking uh, uh, atom. And it's right, it, it's somewhere, it's either, either in one of these special regions or it isn't. What was the mechanism that brought it there? Well, here are two ways to think about it. You say, well, there's just one mechanism that's, that's determining where all of these particles are. That mechanism are the underlying laws of, say, Newtonian mechanics and the, the scattering laws or whatever, right, the underlying dynamics. It's one mechanism. There's another way of saying, no, no, the mechanism that brought this here was a very specific history of collisions with other particles which is an entirely different mechanism in that sense than the mechanism that brought this guy to his location and the mechanism that brought that guy to his location. Now, I, I think as, if you ask me which is the right locution, I don't know, right? But it, that's why I think it's, because I don't know what the right locution is, it's hard for me to think of the principle you gave me as one that can be governing my intuitions because I can push around my intuitions about whether to count this as all of these particles were governed by the same mechanism. So, gee, maybe we should expect them to be correlated. Or all of these particles were governed by individual different mechanisms. So we shouldn't expect them to be correlated. So I, that's why I don't, you know, I, I think the principle you're using is a bit too vague to be of much use. In any case, if the idea, I mean, I can certainly implement it in a way, even in the gas case, and argue by the mechanism criterion if I count the mechanism as the particular history, these are all independent mechanisms. I wasn't thinking that, that uh, this was the this was the uh, sort of you know principle or something uh, motivating motivating uh, what you were what we're thinking about here. Rather, what I was saying is that when you uh, start giving examples of you know uh, other things where statistical independence is clearly you know not right. the sort of thing you want to explain. Uh, I think someone someone might push back and say, oh, but in those cases we have like you know some sort of mechanism thinking going on uh, that is that is uh, accounting for some of these reasons to not expect any further explanation for independence. Well, here 
and you're, you're, you're definitely right that it looks like we can sort of move mechanism talk around without actually changing the, the content of, of, of what we're saying here. Right. And so someone might say, well, then there's something different going on that maybe it's reasonable to extend uh, to extend this sort of you know explanatory uh, thesis to, uh, you know further and say even in cases where right. uh, things were a little you know murkier or where there's no longer a fact about the sort of mechanism. Right. Talk still statistical independence is the sort of thing where yeah, I, I mean, mean that and yeah. but someone's going to say that might be something someone could push you on for a justification. Right. I mean and look I I, I you know I, I sh there's really no reason for me to have put myself so far out on a limb to have a kind of general huge principle of the general statistical independence of gadgets in the universe right. Um, the claim the the immediate claim is that in this case. Right? In this particular case, this is where the thing bottoms out in what they gave us, and it seems right. right? It, seems, it seems odd to me that you would read what, what Maxwell says, says and says, yeah, but still, I'm really, you know, it seems to me, why, you know, I, I need more, I'm unsatisfied. Now, whether, and I, I, I announced it as, a ra as an instance of a rather grand principle. And maybe it was way too grand. And maybe you could come up with other cases with barometers or whatever to show that the principle was way too grand. Of course, that, at the end of the day, wouldn't bother me too much because I don't really care that it be a big grand principle. I care that it be a principle whose application in these kinds of cases, is, this is the right kind of application. Right. Uh, can I just ask a clarification about what the statistical independence is? So is that just at different times? Is that are those the different trials? I mean, look, for, sure. The, 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 what's done in the argument is basically it holds. If it holds at a certain time, then the ansatz will be will will be uh, obeyed for the next delta t. The next if it holds at all times, then the ansatz will be will will hold forever. So the assumption is only if it holds for the next hundred billion years, then the ansatz will hold for the next hundred billion years, and the behavior of these profiles will be, you know, in accordance with these equations. Can Can I just say something? I mean, this sort of relates to what Zach was was bringing up. Look, I'm a little disturbed by the general trend of the conversation here, which seems to be taking it for granted that. Um, that once we're in a position where the average guy wouldn't be asking any more questions, scientific explanation is done. Okay, um, that's just a really bad character, you know. And and I don't think that's what Tim wants to claim either. Okay, you 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 know you put this on the table and it doesn't jump off or turn into an elephant or 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 the table doesn't break or something like that. And nobody is going to be inclined to say why, you know, Jesus, right. why, why did that? Nobody in the Stone Age, before they knew about Newtonian mechanics, is going to be inclined to say why did that happen. But insisting on asking why it happened was pivotal to scientific progress. And there's a lot to say about why the table doesn't break and, and so on and so forth. Tim has, there's something else going on with Tim. As, as he himself said, there are certain places where explanation gets to, where Tim feels the following two things happen. One, the average guy wouldn't be inclined to ask any further questions. And two, Tim doesn't see how anything else can be added to the structure of the world at that point, which would give an explanation. The second is crucial, okay? Um, um, just 
citing examples yeah. of, of situations in which every, nobody would be puzzled right. and everybody, that's not a good way to evaluate wh whether right. there's more room to explain something. Tim has a positive reason, okay, a reason I disagree with, that he can't see how to shut, that, that it, you get to certain points where uh, given Tim's metaphysical commitments, you can't see how to shove anything else into the right. world. Okay, Th to explain this. That's certainly true, and there's one more point to be made, which, and maybe it did drift in that direction. Uh, of course, I was never, in a way, appealing to the average guy. If anybody, I've been appealing to Maxwell and Bolston. They seem, these are real scientific guys. They seem satisfied. Yeah, but none of them is going to is going to have conniption fits if the if the if the table doesn't break either. I mean, everybody's you know. No, they, no, they, but, but look, they were. They, the, the, the thing they is, they were in the business as physicists right. of trying to explain. No, no, no. But let, let me just contrast two cases. Nobody, smart guys or dumb guys, is going to have a conniption fit if the table yeah. doesn't break, okay? But in certain cases, people, are, if, if you bring it up, people are going to say, oh, the table doesn't break because of something yeah, yeah. about the structure sure, of tables sure, and sure, the laws sure, and blah, blah, sure. blah. And in other cases, people like you might be inclined to say, I'm sorry, there's really no further to go here. There's no room right. to shove anything right. else in right. underneath there. Um, that's that's what's crucial here. Okay, that the way further is blocked. Not that the not that either an average guy or a smart guy wouldn't be surprised or something. Well, like that. okay. There, I mean, I, I guess as I, I do think so. And this again comes down to very deep methodological issues. Um, one of the the issue before us is, is and that we're just you know shadow boxing around is what is the nature of scientific understanding? What is the nature of scientific explanation? And, and as philosophers, you have to become self-aware of how you're going to go about trying to answer that question. One way is to start with things you think of, and this, is, you know, this should be familiar to you, but let's apply it. Paradigm cases, where you say, I don't know right now what the right abstract definition of a scientific explanation or getting scientific understanding is, but I know for sure this is an example of it, right? And what I want to do is get into the guts of that thing and see if I can figure out at a more abstract general level what is it about it that makes it so explaining, okay? Um, I guess part of my attitude toward this is that when I read someone like Boltzmann and I go through this argument, I, I have that feeling. I feel like that's just it. That's just really a good, complete explanation there. He didn't leave anything out. Um, part of my job is to go into the guts of that and see, well, what were the principles that were floating around in there that allowed him to derive this result and make me feel like he's, he's adequately explained it to me? Okay? Um, or you, could, you, could, you can think, no, no, I've got sort of stronger theoretical commitments, and I'm not, you know, I'm not denigrating this, you might say, no, I have some sort of stronger theoretical commitments about the nature of explanation so that if what was written down here doesn't satisfy them, I'm going to go in and say, I think I need, I think there's more background that needs mm -hmm. to be supplied mm -hmm. here that was maybe implicit or that people were bringing in without thinking about it. Right. Okay. And I think uh, we're a bit on different sides right. of, of the divide right. with, with this case, right? Okay. Uh, I'd like to hear more about the statistical independence, and I have a case for you to I think, work. So um, let's say that the, being a, the probability of being a human is uh, uncorrelated with the probability of being a male human being. 
Ankara was being a female human being too, mm-hmm. right? So that case of the disco independence uh, in your sense. God seems, I think we can all agree that for any particular human being, uh, that he is being a male or female. That well, that's not even, what you just gave me wasn't even well formed. Um, so why is it not well formed? So, I think uh, every every because every male human and every male every female human is a human being. Yes. So, like, I think that is so, analogous to. No, 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 wait, wait, wait. You, you've right. got to have a group of. There are the A's and the not A's. Yes. Okay, and there's going to be some percentage of A's and not A's. Right. There are the B's and the not B's. All right. Your your example just doesn't have this form. There's a percentage of B's and then now there's the question, is the percentage of A things that are both A and B just the product of the percentage that are A and the percentage that are B or not? That's statistical independence. You just your example just didn't have that form. Um, so what would you tell um can you rephrase your uh, the example that talking about the uh, collisions? What was that? What's the property that's supposed to be independent? Okay, so we have we we, we the, the the properties there are on the one hand we have the locations of these regions. Okay, some some points are in these regions and some points aren't. That's a property that a point in space can have. Here's another property a point in space in, can have. It can either be one that's occupied by one of these particles or not occupied. Okay? Yeah. Now, uh, with percentages, I mean, it's, it, if we discretize this, we could do this. But the, the idea would be sort of, there are certain, you know, I mean, technically, but you get the idea. Now, you say there are a certain number of occupied places. Are, are they correlated with these target regions or not? That's a well-defined mathematical question given any actual distribution of these particles within these regions. And it's a very simple case. Again, really the question is, there's a total volume, there's a total volume V of space in this box. There's a certain amount, little v, which is the sum of all these purple regions. Okay? So this thing, this thing is going to be, you know, a, a certain ratio or a certain percentage. This, the, the positions of these particles will be statistically independent of the locations of these regions if the percentage of these particles that are, happen to be in those regions is this percentage. So if this occupies, if the little purple regions are a millionth of the total volume and a millionth of these particles live in them, then, then you have statistical independence. And otherwise not. If, you know, if this is a millionth of, of the volume, and none of them are in them, which is possible, then they're not statistically dependent. Independent, right? Then they're statistically dependent. Okay. But, uh, so, still not seem very obvious to me that the two cases are uh, disanalogous. So, uh, just think of human beings as, you know, a space, a point in space. And, yes. And thinking about, you know, thinking uh, what whether, whether the question is so now you need two properties yeah. you only gave me one male and female um, you think that's just one uh, you think that's males and not males you were dividing them into males and not males you only gave me one division you need to give me a second division like tall and short um, why is it you know the first being a human being that's not probably 
Because all it's a, okay. because the properties have to divide the space. Yeah. You're saying the humans are just the space. Okay. I see. They're not dividing the space. All right. I see. So you need to you need, your example just isn't an example. Okay. I see. Okay. Um, we're going to get nowhere near where we were supposed to. Should I try something? Right, let's move. Sure. Let's move. Fast, we can speed slow down the recording later. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> Whenever I'm torn this way, my reaction, and I'm happy to try and adjust my behavior. No, I'm happy to say I'll try to adjust my behavior. I actually won't do it. Um, but I'm happy to make a show of trying to adjust my behavior if you, you're upset that we're not, if we fall behind the syllabus or whatever. My view is, this was a really good conversation. These were all good questions. I'd much rather have stopped and talked about right. it and get behind on the syllabus. And I don't care. But if, 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 if anybody here, if there's like a large sense of, what the hell are you guys doing? You know, you're wasting our, you know, I, I'll try and speed that up. Otherwise, why don't we just continue on, a, on this kind of pace? And I, I think this was what we should have been doing probably more. I'm in favor of wasting further time. Um, okay. Uh, so, okay. So, I'm allowed to ask you more about the law. Um, I actually, in the, in the case of the law, I think what David said about Barry coming in and the fact that that's no, but I think and we also have Shelley coming in. Shelley will come in and bring that. Sounds to me like a lot of these that we've been yeah. talking about essentially. Uh, it, it definitely, it definitely has to do with that. But this, but we are going right. to have a chance to to flesh this out a lot more. I mean, what, part, part of what we want to do now, part of what we should have been doing that we haven't been doing, is just getting the mathematical apparatus, right, on the, table. the generalization of the mathematical apparatus and some mathematical results on the table, right. which then will need to be interpreted and understood. Um, and as I say, I, I agree with David. We, 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 it's only when we have all those pieces on the table and you can, for example, David's going to say, well, I think X is a law, and I'm going to disagree, but we don't even know what X is yet. Right. So we need to get to the point where we have those pieces in place before we can raise those questions. And there will be plenty of time to... to can I raise it after class? Hmm? Can I raise it after class? <laughs> sure. <laughs> let, me, let me try and go on for a second here about what, about what goes on in Boltzmann's paper, and then we're going to try and get to some generalizations. So, so Boltzmann has derived an equation for how this gadget will now evolve in time. And he's shown that if this distribution is the Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution, it won't evolve in time. That'll be the static distribution. And then he goes on to, to define, now in the history, he defines this thing that in that paper you have is called E, and later gets called H, and is later related to S. <laughs> All of these are sort of related to each other. What he wants to show here is that, and, and this is just defined. Now, the thing I want to point out about this, and this is just the mathematical definition taken right out of the paper. So it's the integral. Remember, your x is the energy. So you're integrating over all possible energies. And you've got this f, which is giving you the distribution of energy at a time. So this, this thing is going to be a function of time, this e of t. It gives you the distribution of energies, and then you multiply that distribution times the log of the distribution, again, over a root x, which is because this is energy. Minus 1, that kind of drops out, dx. Okay, so that's just a number. He doesn't, Maxwell doesn't, uh, Boltzmann doesn't say anything about this number. He doesn't say it, it, it this is, you know, 
this is an expression of something you're already familiar with or anything like that. He just writes it down. And then he goes through many pages of derivation to show you that this E will change in time only by ever getting smaller. If F is changing in time in accordance with the dynamical equation he's derived. So as long as so what do we know? We know as long as this holds, this thing will evolve in time in a certain way, and as long as it involves in time in that way, this number will always either stay where it is or, or go down. And in fact, as long as it's not, he's, he proves something stronger, if F is not the Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution, if it's any other distribution, this number will decrease with time. Okay? And it reaches zero, or the minimum. I mean, I don't know if it's zero when you have the one in here. Anyway, it reaches its minimum for the Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution. So that tells us if we start out anywhere except the Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution, and the behavior is the behavior we've derived, this quantity will, will in, a, in a regular way, approach, and if it ever gets there, stay forever at the Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution. And, and so you say, well, that's telling you that the actual distribution, as long as it's behaving in accordance with the equation we, evolve, we, we derive, the actual distribution will, in fact, go to the Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution. So now we have an explanation for why if we start a box of gas off in any old state we like and isolate it and wait long enough, eventually it'll settle down to this particular distribution. Now, the point I want to make about this, this E, what's it a function of? It's a function of this distribution of energies. And that is just a fact about this particular box of gas. Right? If I have a single box of gas in front of me, at, a, at every moment, there is some distribution of energies. This number is some function of that distribution of energies. And what I've shown is that it, on the assumption that, the, the, that, that this behaves in the way I've said, this thing will approach. Okay. What we, what we then do, so E later on beco becomes called H, and this thing always goes down. And when you redefine it, it goes down to the minimum zero. We're going to then eventually relate that to the entropy. So this is the point. We're eventually going to get a definition of the entropy of a system. Of course, we think the entropy does the opposite. The entropy will tend on its own to go up to a maximum, not down to a minimum. And that's because this is sort of one minus, the, you might think this is one minus the entropy in a certain sense. Okay. But what have we got? It looks like we've derived then the time asymmetric thermodynamic behavior, which David started with, stated in the original laws of thermodynamics. We needed to connect up the thermodynamic vocabulary with the statistical mechanical vocabulary. Some of those connections are straightforward. For example, for pressure, it's determined by momentum transfer, right? The pressure of the gas is determined by how many times the particles are bouncing against the walls of the chamber and with how much velocity. So given the micro description, you know how to derive P. You know how to derive V, the volume of the box, right? There's no problem of translation there. 
there's an issue about T. What's the temperature? Well, we know the temperature is going to end up being essentially the mean kinetic energy for the monatomic thing. It's the average value of one-half mv squared. So for this box in front of us, there's a well-defined T. But what David showed you was that in standard, old-fashioned, plain thermodynamics, there's this other quantity, S, the entropy. And it's not at all obvious what the what the entropy is, right? what the definition of the entropy ought to be in terms of the microstructure. Okay? Now, you can, if you start, if you think of this as being related to the entropy of the system, this E, you can see it's a function of this distribution. And the point, I'm, the, point the, the conceptual point I want to make here is it's a feature of an individual system. It's a feature of a single, any single box of gas will have one that you can count on. Okay? Now, what happens is you might say, but look, this thing is, a, is, an energy, is an energy distribution function of particles. What if I'm dealing with an entirely different kind of system? What if it's not particles, a box and a gas? What if, you know, what if it's uh, you know, vibrating an iron bar where the, the velocities aren't really relevant? I mean, sort of the mean velocities are zero because they're just fixed, but they're vibrating. You know, we need to generalize these notions and to get a statistical mechanical definition of entropy that will apply to a wide variety of systems. And I don't know if there's any very natural way to, to get from here to the normal thing. Well, I think there are things you can say in between. Um, and I think there are things Boltzmann said in between. Um, you know, about, about well, it may... So why don't you want to, I mean, if you want to say... How much time do we have? Uh, not much. <laughs> Yeah, about 10 minutes. Um, so, but let's start so very crudely. Behind, so you see the idea. We now want to sort of generalize this so it'll apply to things other than boxes of gas. Or, I mean, or but let's stick with boxes of gas for a minute, but, but, yeah. but turn our attention away from the velocity distribution and towards the position distribution. Right, okay. So, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think this is a Boltzmannian example now. Um, so, so Boltzmann reasoned like this. <clears throat> Forget about the velocity. Um, um, so... So here's here's a box of gas. Okay, um, um, divided up into divided up in your imagination into small cubicles. Okay. What we're going to be, and, and we're going to be, forget about the, forget about the velocity profile of the particles. Okay, um, just think for the moment about the position profile of the particles. Um, call, I mean, we could play the same game in a six-dimensional space as opposed to a three-dimensional space. I could, I just can't draw it on the on the blackboard, and there, we, we're, we're dealing now in what I call mu space in, sometime in the, first couple of, uh, in, in the first couple of classes. We can represent the state, we, we can represent, um, well, we can represent the state of, uh, of an n-particle system in a thing like this by, by choosing n-numbered points in here somewhere. Boltzmann describes a slightly cruder um, uh, two, two slightly cruder levels 
of describing the state of such a system. And once again, think for the moment only of the position coordinates and not of the velocity coordinates. Um, uh, one which is slightly cruder is called an arrangement. Okay, An arrangement depends on a certain, first of all, chopping up of the space into small but finite um, cubicles. Okay, And what it is to, st to specify what the arrangement of the particles is, is to say which particles are located in which boxes. Okay? There's a, there's a still slightly cruder level of description, which I think Boltzmann calls a distribution. Okay? What you mean by giving a distribution is specifying how many particles there are in each box without specifying which ones are where. Okay? Everybody with me? Okay? And now Boltzmann makes the following famous, simple, um, combinatorial um, argument. He says, look, um, imagine a state, imagine an arrangement in which all the particles are in here. Okay? Um, uh, excuse me, a distribution in which all the particles are in here. Ask, how many distinct arrangements does that distribution correspond to? Answer one. Okay? Um, every single particle has to be in there. Imagine a slightly different distribution where n minus one of the particles is here and one of the particles is here. Okay? Ask how many distinct arrangements that distribution corresponds to. Answer n. Everybody with me? Okay? Good. So, Boltzmann makes this very striking observation that as the distribution of the particles tends to spread out, that is, tends to approach the, the, the state we're used to, the situation we're used to associating with equilibrium types of states, and so on and so forth, um, the number of arrangements corresponding to those distributions skyrocket. Everybody with me? Note also um, that the number of arrangements um, uh, how do I want to put this? Um, that if we chop this up into, if, if we chop up the mu space into equal volumes, okay, um, then every arrangement will correspond to the same volume of phase space as every other arrangement. Does everybody see this? Should I go? Should I go through the? Any questions about this? Somebody say I don't see that. Everybody see that? Yes? Okay, good. So, number of arrangements associated with a distribution, um, if we chop this up evenly, is a measure of volume of phase space by the standard volume measure associated with each distribution. Okay? Boltzmann is noticing that the number of arrangements and so the, the volume of phase space, at least in this simple case, that is, here's a case where, unlike in the energy distribution case, we have, you know, we, we, we have a very clear intuition about what the equilibrium distribution looks like, okay? It's the distribution that's uniform, okay? The closer it is to being uniform, the less bunched up it is, the closer it is to being in equilibrium, okay? Boltzmann notices by this kind of argument, that it's also true, at least in this particular case, that um, 
um, that as the standard thermodynamic entropy is going up, as the distributions approach closer and closer to the equilibrium distribution, the volume of phase space associated with that distribution on the microscopic level is going up. Okay, and moreover, going up really, really fast, going up exponentially fast as this thing spreads out. Everybody with me? So, um, there are two things included. Can I actually just make a real quick mathematical sure. point? Sure. Just about what David did, just, just to connect up with this, and another thing you'll see everywhere is an integral of rho log rho, right, associated with. So this, you, that, that you take an integral of something times the log of it, right? You'll see that all over the place, and information. Well, that's going to be, I mean, but the, it's obviously the like, log is in there to get the additivity. Well, the, the, the one thing I want to point out, so this is a, this, you do an integral because it's a continuous distribution, but in David's case, we just have these finite boxes, and you would you could characterize this by putting the percentage of the total number of particles in each box. Right. And so in his original one where they're all here, you might put 100% or 1, right, really 1 here, 0 everywhere else. Let's just think about, and, and this integral will just become a sum. So let's just think about what it does. If I put all the particles here, and it's really negative, sorry, the negative of that. If I put all the particles here, when I calculate for this box, rho, or this percentage is 1, but the log of 1 is 0. Okay? Because e to the 0 is 1. And in every other box, because rho is 0, it's 0. So when I calculate this thing, I get 0. If I put one particle here, so suppose there are 100 particles, this now becomes 99, and that's 1. For this box, rho is 99, the log of 0.99, it's a negative number because it's less than 1 that this will be some negative number, right? You'll get some negative number here, the rest will all be zero. But you see you've deviated from zero. And this is just to give you a sense, because Scar says something like, this is a measure of how spread out the state is. And if I take the negative of this, basically this number just gets bigger mm -hmm. the more evenly these things have been sprinkled throughout these boxes, okay? And I, that's that just indicate good. why you know why this particular form is something else. Good, 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 good. Um, so it seems to me the minute you see this, there are, there are two things that ought to jump out at you, and I think did at Boltzmann. Um, although Tim knows more about the historical Boltzmann than I do, so he can correct me. But but here's here's what I always imagine must have jumped out at me. Um, um, one. Oh, I see. Okay, this is a hint, um, and a hint consistent with what we did here um, about how to define the entropy, um, about in general what the entropy corresponds to. Okay, um, the entropy of a certain macro condition is is some measure of the volume of phase space um, of micro filled up by micro conditions compatible with that macro condition. Okay. Um, as to the particular mathematical form, Tim made some comments about it. One thing you notice immediately is if you just made it the volume, okay, that wouldn't be good um, because then um, then the way to get the the way to get the the joint entropy of say a pair of 
systems of subsystems, each of whose entropy you know, would would you you you'd get the product of the two volumes if you did it that way. Whereas thermodynamically, entropy is an additive quantity rather than a multiplicative quantity when you combine separate subsystems. So um, so writing it in terms of the logarithm. Um, of the volume rather than just the volume itself is going to make it is going to make it additive like the thermodynamic entropy is okay but it's still going to have this feature that jumps right out at you here uh, the volume is getting larger as you go towards equilibrium the volume of high entropy states high thermodynamic entropy states um, the volume associated in phase space with high um, thermodynamic entropy states is much larger than the volume associated with low thermodynamic entropy states. So that's the first thing. It reinforces a generalization of the expression for, for entropy that we were using here. It makes it look like that's very much on the right track. Okay. Second thing, um, um, I, I don't know. I don't want to use too strong a word here. It contributes towards the sense that there could be a generalized kind of dynamical understanding of the approach to equilibrium in the following way. It's not only that the volumes of phase space get larger as you go towards equilibrium. They get larger really, really fast. Okay. They get larger exponentially fast. Okay. So that if you look at the space, you know, at the, at the set of available states relative to a certain set of gross constraints, okay, um, um, the equilibrium state, you know, higher entropy states are going to take up much larger volume than lower entropy states, and the equilibrium state is going to take up a much larger volume than anything else or all the rest of them combined. Okay, and so if you say, look, I don't know, I, I don't have a proof like I do in this case, in the more general case, it's a very complicated thing, I don't know how they're going to evolve, I imagine them evolving by some random walk wandering over this energy hypersurface or something like that, it makes it very crudely plausible, barring other, other observations to the contrary, that this is going to do the right thing. That is, the thing randomly wanders over the energy hypersurface. Well, it's going to get itself, you know, it, it's, it's, first of all, once it gets into equilibrium, it's going to take it a hell of a long time to get back out, just because there aren't many places that are out of it, okay? And if it's wandering around at random, it's going to spend most of its time there. Moreover, if you do a slightly, so here's a picture of the energy hypersurface that emerges from these kinds of considerations. This is the surface um, um, containing all microstates that are compatible with the gross constraints, that is, total energy, volume of the box, blah, blah, blah. What we've just learned is that, is that and I'm not drawing it to scale here, it should be more than this, is that equilibrium takes up some huge space like this. Okay. And if you think about it a little more carefully, you can say a little more about the topology of how other states are related to one another, so that if the one where they're all in one corner is like this, the one where they're a little more spread out 
will be near it and bordering it and blah, blah, blah. And you say something starts out in here, it sort of randomly makes its way around over this surface. I see what's going to happen. It's in general going to be going into larger and larger entropy states because they take up more and more volume. And eventually it's going to get into equilibrium and then it's going to stay there for a hell of a long time. Okay? So... All of this, one doesn't want to say something stronger about this than is warranted. All of this is encouraging. Okay? Um, um, and we notice, for example, that the Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution, okay, um, similarly is the, is the distribution among the velocities that takes up a much, much, much larger region of the phase space. Um, than any of the other dis than any other specifiable distribution, and so on and so forth. So, this interpretation of entropy begins to emerge as this logarithmic measure of volume in phase space. Okay. Um, what, yeah, maybe we're probably at the end. But maybe can I just draw a picture? Sure. Maybe a little because. Just to, this is just to reinforce what David was saying, but maybe to get a different picture in your head. Take his case where we've got, I don't know, however many there are, you know, uh, uh, 40, 40 boxes here. And uh, imagine instead of a, 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 a shape like that, a shape that has 40 kind of sharp points to it. Um, each of these points represents the state where they're all in one of the 40 boxes. And arrange them so that nearby, by a nearby state, I mean a state you can get to by moving a single particle from a box to a neighboring box. Okay, so the general picture is that, well, there'll be these, these 40, you know, that is adjacent, so adjacent to this one, there are only two other states because they can only wander here, here, or adjacent to this one, there'll be four states, right? So you'll have these points that'll be very far from each other, and I can't get by one step. So this will be, they're all jammed together here. They're a little bit spread out, but mostly they're here a little bit more, here a little bit more. And then there's this big, huge central mothership, right, <laughs> which is equilibrium, right. which is sitting in the center. And actually, That's, you know, and you, you sort of imagine, you, so it's just for the, for the sort of topology, the shape of this thing. And then you say, well, gee, if I just started here and wandered at random, and so, and this is very interesting because the other thing was dependent on very much analyzing the microdynamics, mm -hmm. and I was throwing away the microdynamics, right. and just say, just well, we're keeping some yeah. very vague intuition right. about the microdynamics, right. but it's complicated. Yeah, <laughs> and, you know, just kind of wander right. at random. Well, you would expect right. Right. that 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 you'll end up here, right. and maybe you could even talk about what you want to go on the way. If there's a right. drift rate, that's how right. it might take that's you, right. and things like that's that. Right. Yeah. Let me just say one other thing to reinforce a point that Tim made earlier. It's clear how these confusions begin to arise, and there's nothing to say about these confusions except that they're stupid, but they're very widespread in the literature. So there's this association that we've just produced between entropy and volume in phase space. Okay? As a result of this, you'll see statements all over the literature like um, an individual microstate, okay? since the volume of phase space that it occupies is zero, obviously has no entropy, okay? And no microstate has a different entropy than any other microstate because all of them share the property of taking up a volume of zero in phase space. And this is often the beginning of an argument 
that quantities like entropy can only intelligibly be posited of, say, ensembles of systems or probability distributions over systems or anything like that. And the only thing to do with these people is hit them, okay? <laughs> I mean, the, the, this is just silly. Um, of course, an entropy can be associated with an individual microstate. How do you associate an entropy with an individual microstate? You find out what macrostate the microstate belongs to. You calculate the, the appropriate logarithm of the volume of that macrostate, and that's the entropy associated with that microstate. And if that wasn't the case, if entropies only did apply, if statistical mechanical entropies only were intelligibly positable of ensembles or of uh, probability distributions or something like that, then they sure as hell wouldn't be an interpretation of thermodynamic entropy, okay? Because thermodynamic entropy sure as hell is a process, a, pro a, a, a property of individual thermodynamic systems just as temperature and pressure and volume are. But there's just an unbelievable amount of ink that's been spilled along these lines claiming that that entropy, well, the, the first thing to say is, so claiming that entropy is, can only intelligibly be understood as a feature of ensembles of systems or probability distributions of, uh, over systems or um, as characterizing our epistemic relationship to systems. What's, what state the system might be in for all we know, or something like that. This is crap, okay? And, and if anything like that were true, we, sh we would not have arrived at anything like a micro microscopic interpretation of thermodynamic entropy, okay? Um, one, one can't, I mean, I'm just one can't yeah, emphasize one this can't overemphasize also how common this is even among the experts who make right. a living in this. Right, right. So you right. take 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 a take take an ice cube and put it in a glass of water and imagine it's half melted. Right. And then you ask literally experts, because you know, we've done this and Shelley's done this a lot, right. and you say, That glass in front of me, Suppose you now came by knowledge of its exact microstate. Right. Right. Suppose I told you somehow right. the precise position and momentum of every molecule. What would its entropy be? And right. they will say zero. Right. Right. And you say, but that's crazy, right? right. Because the entropy is increasing. I mean, this, the, 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 the ice is melting in the glass. Right. I mean, this will also, you'll also see this connected in the literature to statements like, this is why, in order to understand increase of entropy, coarse graining is a conceptual necessity or something like that. I mean, we haven't really talked about coarse graining yet, but I mean, there's just amazing piles of bullshit that, that follow from, from this very simple um, error. Um, it's something to be very much watched out for. Good, so next week we're at Columbia. <laughs>